Hey, it's Kathy. I have something so fun to tell you about. You may know that the doors are open to my new program, The Abundance Method, but if you enroll by May 15th at 11.59 p.m. Pacific, you're going to get my signature business program also made to do this. That's a $3,000 program that you are going to get for free included if you sign up by May 15th, just before midnight Pacific time. Made to do this is a phenomenal program that has helped thousands of souls to start businesses, to be able to make a living doing something that they love. This is an incredible deal. You don't want to miss it. Go ahead and sign up at kathyheller.com slash join. The job of being in show business is not quitting. The job of being in show business is to keep trying to get the gigs. That's the job because we do this because we love it. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome to the Kathy Heller podcast. This show is meant to be a guide for you. I want to be that mentor who can hold your hand through this journey. I know that there are so many twists and turns in navigating not only what is happening in our mind, but also understanding strategically how we want to get from where we are to where we want to go. In the show, we're going to talk not only about how we can start to become aware of what are the subconscious things that are holding us back and how we can instead choose thoughts that are actually going to propel us forward. But in addition to changing the landscape internally, we are going to talk about the strategies that actually will help you to build a profitable business, getting paid to be you. Because when you have a business where you do what you love, you never really have to have that sense of work because it's a pleasure, because it's joy. And really, I want you to have the most abundant life. I want you to have the kind of life that you love waking up to every day that you don't feel like you need a vacation from. So together on the show, every single episode, I want to be your friend. I want to be your mentor. I want to show you what is it that I think has really been insightful, been helpful. What are the tools and strategies? What are the mindset shifts that have helped me? And what are the things that have helped my guests to get to where they are? How can we together sort of cross this river to the most fulfilling life where we show up and we feel like we are living into our potential and having the most gorgeous, beautiful experience because after all, that is what we all desire. We're all craving to have the most joyful, beautiful life. And I really believe that we can design that and that we can experience a life that we just absolutely love. And not only will we enjoy it, but it will be a possibility for other people. It will show other people what's there for them. And then maybe together, each one of us, by being the happiest versions of ourselves and being the most fulfilled versions of ourselves, we will help other people to reach for that higher branch and to find that in their own life. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the Kathy Heller Podcast. We have such a fun episode for you today. Truly such a full circle moment for me personally. I can't wait to dive in and share with you what it's all about. Before we do, I just want to let you know that we are going to choose winners for the Nordstrom giveaway. These are two $500 gift cards. That's right. So two of you will win $500 to Nordstrom to go have yourself a little shopping spree. All you have to do is give us some feedback. We're looking to hear from you about what are your goals for this year? What feels like it's in the way? And what are some ways that you feel like I might be able to help you to create the right content or the right kinds of things that would help you reach your goals. So if you go to kathyheller.com slash share, I'll be announcing two winners in just a few days and two of you will win a $500 gift card to Nordstrom just for giving us feedback. So go ahead, go to kathyheller.com slash share and tell us about you. Tell us what's on your heart. Tell us what's on your mind because this helps us so much to make the right podcast episodes, to create workshops and to create all the right things that are going to help you achieve your goals. Okay. Well, today is such a treat because the phenomenal Adam Pass is here. He's a Tony Award nominated actor, singer, and musician who you probably recognize. He was Roger in the original cast of a musical called Rent, which became one of the longest running shows on Broadway. It won a Pulitzer Prize and four Tony Awards. Adam also played Rodimaze in the original and final cast of Elton John's and Tim Rice's musical Aida. His other credits include Cabaret, Chicago, Chess, Memphis, Something Rotten, Disaster, the movie version of Rent, and currently you can see him in Pretty Woman the Musical. I saw Rent when it first opened on Broadway in 1996. I was 16 years old and I remember sitting in the theater and I was aware that it was the most magical thing I had ever witnessed. I was completely changed by watching that performance and uh, I, at the time, just thought he was the most crush-worthy, just 
handsome, awesome guy. So my 16-year-old self (laughs) would have basically passed out if you told her that 28 years from now, she would be sitting with Adam and having this uh, heart-to-heart conversation. It was very surreal, but he was so sweet and the whole experience was magical and just the best. If you don't already know him or you didn't already adore him, you're just going to fall head over heels in love with him after this conversation. Without further ado, please welcome the spectacular Adam Pascal. Adam, yes. thank you yes. so much for taking the time out of your really amazing life to be here with me. I'm so- uh, thank you, Kathy. It's occasionally amazing. A lot of time it's pretty mundane, but thank you. <laughs> So I was 15 years old and I saw Rent probably two months after you guys opened. And um, as it was happening, I was aware that I was watching Haley's Comet. Uh, everything in my body knew that I was seeing something and feeling something that had I could like ball my eyes out saying this, but like the amount of love, passion, talent, vulnerability, creativity, and kindness that I felt I had never felt in my life. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm not overstating it at all. And I said, yes, this doesn't exist. This is, this is lightning striking a thousand times a second. And it changed my life to be in that theater, the resonance of all of you and your willingness to stand in that much vulnerability literally changed me. And every time somebody asks me what value there is in theater, like, well, it's not curing cancer. I say the experience I've had. And the second one like that was seeing you and Aida like three months after it opened. And I I was like, well, there's no way it'll live up. And I was like, oh my God, same experience, rocket ship teleported. So it was like religious experience. Like I can't put words on it. And you know what I'm talking about because you were experiencing it on your own level. So I just want to interject and say that I've been the experiencer that you just described. I have had similar experiences being in an audience and seeing things myself, you know, and the first thing that comes to mind and my experiences in that regard have to do more with music and seeing artists that I've always, you know, like that have been heroes of mine. But I remember seeing, you know, you two in 1990 at Yankee stadium and I was 10th row. And I felt like I had one of those like, transcendental experiences where like, I can't believe what I'm witnessing. You know what I mean? And like, but the great thing about musical theater and certainly rent at that time is you can keep coming back every night and seeing it, which would have been great. I wish I could have done that with that YouTube concert, but it was a one night only thing, but yes, thank you for all, for all of that. And, and it is the greatest blessing that I was part of things and have been part of things like that as somebody who grew up again, searching for those types of experiences and having them in the world of music and theater, more music than theater, but, but nonetheless, and being an artist myself, being a musician and always dreaming like the character of Roger of creating something and being part of something that would last to then end up in this thing that ended up being that thing. You know what I mean? It's the biggest irony about me and that character yeah. and and especially that song one song glory and what he's saying and sort of the whole meta-ness of the whole thing and, and you know what i mean and like so meta yeah it's <laughs> wild <laughs> uh, well let's take this back and then we're gonna hear everything that you've been doing and what your heart is calling you to now but let's go back to you at like those early moments of wonder when you were like five six eight ten like where was the whisper coming from like How and when did you kind of know like, oh, this will be my path come hell or high water? Like, where were those initial clues for you? Okay, well, the the earliest ones were, um, so I grew up in New York and up until about the age nine or 10, I lived in the Bronx. And so my earliest memories of music and those years were Barry Manilow, the cast album to A Chorus Line. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Simon and Garfunkel, the Eagles, just early 70s stuff, everything that was popular, whatever it was. And I remember all of that stuff. And I remember singing. I remember starting to sing with specifically with Barry Manilow. <laughs> and I would sing Mandy. And I, I would this little yeah. five-year-old kid and I would sing Mandy and weekend in New England and trying to the get best. this feeling, all of these like emotional, like you know, adult emotion songs. And I loved them and I started singing. And also around that time, you know, Billy Joel, Elton John, like all of that stuff started to seep into me. And I started to just like absorb it, you know, 
And then as I got older, just that love of music and that love of singing continued to expand. When I was about 10 or 11 years old, I started really getting into like hard rock music and, and the metal bands at the time. And, and that's when I really started taking my singing seriously because I was like, wow, I, I can kind of do this and it feels really good. It feels <laughs> really good. And then I started playing in bands and then the other guys in the band were like, oh, wow, you can actually sing. You yeah. know, and I was like, okay, now I'm the singer guy. So very early on, like uh, 12 years old, that became the path I was on. And I did what a lot of musicians did at the, you know, when they were a teenager would they, you know, they would sit in their room and they would, they would play guitar or they would play whatever their instruments and they would practice for hours and hours and hours. You know, I sat in my room and I sang along to these, these songs and these records with my headphones on it. And that's how my voice started to develop. And so, so very early on, my path was rock music. And I never deviated from that really until my mid-20s until I was living in New York City and I got a call from Miss Idina Menzel, who, uh, the little oh backstory, God. Idina and I grew up together on Long Island. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, I've known her since third grade. We, <laughs> you know, we took the bus together every day. We went through, high, you know, middle school, high school. I never uh, knew any did, of this. That's so sweet. Yeah. She dated a very good friend of mine. and She literally lived down the block from me. So in 1995, she had already been cast in the off-Broadway production and she knew that they were having trouble casting this role of Roger. And she called me up. She was like, Hey, I know that you don't do this and you've never done this before, but would you be interested in doing this auditioning? And she told me a little bit about it. And, you know, I had had not a lot of theater experience. One experience I had in the late seventies for two weeks, I went to stage door manor, which is a a very famous musical theater camp, you know, in the Catskills. Well, I went there for two weeks and I was the youngest kid in the camp. And I cried the whole time because I was so homesick. (laughs) So that was my experience with stage door manor. But I loved musicals. I loved musical movies. I loved music concept albums. I, so I was very familiar with the genre. Hair has always been one of my favorite movies of all time. The Rocky Horror Picture Show, Grease. Yeah. I just, I loved all of these things. So a rock musical, the concept of a rock musical, I was very familiar with and really excited by. So when she called me up and asked me this, I was like, sure. Okay. Why not? I'll audition for that. Never really looking past that moment, you know, of just, yeah, okay, I'll audition. And then once I got the part and then the, the sort of the, the rocket started to take off and it really just obviously led to so many things. It's we're close to 30 years ago. I think this is 28 years ago. You know, this was 95, uh, winter of 95. Wow. And so, yeah, so that's how it all started. It's amazing. Well, I want to say two things. One, there's like this thing people say where it's like, don't meet your heroes because you might be let down. And I just am having this experience that's so surreal because I mean, I was 15 when I saw Rent. So you can imagine you were like the crushes of all crushes for me. (laughs) But like to find out that you're like the sweetest, most humble, adorable, likable. No, really, like you're so adorable and sweet and easy to love. And I'm just like, how is this experience happening? And I'm a Jewish girl from Long Island. So like I grew up (laughs) on Mary Manilow and my parents went to Hofstra and my dad's from, my mom went to Queens College and my dad, like I did, like everything you're saying, I'm like, That's crazy that like you became this with that beginning. And I was just watching everything everywhere all at once. And it's, yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but I want to see it. Yeah. I won't tell you any of the things, but just the idea that there's like so much more to the universe than we like can perceive. So like, of course, your childhood friend, like, we're, we're all so hell bent on things being so linear and like it has to this way and be this way. And, and if I don't get to the right place at the right time, but it's kind of like being in the right place at the right time is knowing you're already there in the right place at the yes, right time. Uh, and if you're just who you are in the biggest, best vibration of whatever that is, it's like it can't miss you. Like, of course, she was going to call you because right. you're it and it's you. And it's like, so anyway. Yeah. You get this part. And then at what point did you have this like, holy shit, this is what we're making? Like, when did it dawn on you? Like, this has never been nothing like I feel like Rent completely changed Broadway. And you know that. When did you know that? At what point in the rehearsals or when were you like, oh, I'm on a rocket ship that's never no one's landed on the moon this way before? Right. Um, Well, it was it was very hard to. You know, certain things like that are only visible in hindsight, you know, and so in the moment, very soon on in the rehearsal process off Broadway, we knew that we were doing something really special and wonderful. But that being said, never in a million years 
conceived the success that it would ultimately have. Like, I thought, oh, this is going to be an amazing off-Broadway show that people wow. I think are really going to like. <laughs> right. And we'll run for eight weeks. And then it'll, th- you know, oh. like, you know, I didn't know what to expect. So every step of the way, as the whole experience grew and grew and got greater and greater and larger and larger, it was like, oh my God, really? Oh my God, really? Like, <laughs> and, every- and everything happened so fast within such a short amount of time. But, but then also everything on the heels of Jonathan dying. You know what I mean? So all of these things were happening. All of this was happening. So and then at the crazy. same time, this enormous weight of the death of Jonathan Larson was hanging over all of us. And so it wasn't like, I imagine the kids in Hamilton got to experience no. their success. You know what I mean? We unfortunately, you know, so much of the success of our show had to do with death. It had to do with Jonathan dying. It had to do with what the show was about and how it was affecting people who had lost loved ones to death, whether it was AIDS or whatever it was. That was the thing about about our show is that the fact that these characters had AIDS and and were HIV positive and were dying and like, you know, in various states of, of illness from that was somewhat incidental. You know, it it went beyond that. The themes and the ideas went beyond that and spoke to people who were experiencing loss in any way and who craved the experience of connection and love. And it spoke to those things in a much broader way that, again, made the AIDS aspect of it somewhat incidental and which is evident by all of these years later where the world is not experiencing AIDS and and HIV in the same way that it was back then. But yet the show still resonates in the same way because that doesn't matter in the same way that, you know, like the show was based on La Boheme and they, those characters had tuberculosis. And if you're going to see La Boheme today and you're somebody who enjoys that, it doesn't matter that nobody gets tuberculosis anymore. It's, it's about more than that. Right. And it was so palpable. I saw Rent five times on Broadway and then I saw it like four times on tour. And it was only after the first time I saw it that I even knew who Jonathan Larson really was and what had happened. But it was so palpable in the unrelenting passion that every one of you had in every breath, in every line that you were committed to telling that story even more so because of How tragic. But for anyone who's listening who doesn't know what we're talking about, will you explain not only what happened, but what your experience was of what happened? Sure. So um, Jonathan Larson, who was the creator of Rent and Tick, Tick, Boom, and among other things, but he um, died suddenly of an aortic aneurysm the night of our open dress rehearsal off-Broadway. So we were opening the next night off-Broadway, and he died he dropped dead in his apartment the night before. And so you can imagine the effect, the ripple effect that that had on everything Mm. and the domino effect that that had on everything. But one of the bittersweet and certainly unforeseen effects that his death had was the galvanization of all of us, certainly as the people who were involved in the show, but so much of the audience as well. Like so many people who in the, and certainly in that first year that were coming to the show and were having this experience were as affected by his death, even though they didn't know him as we were, because it was so fresh. It was so palpable. It was part of the experience at the time. People seeing rent now, it's, it's not part of it anymore. And you know what? Good. It shouldn't be, you know what I mean? But for us, as actors and performers and so much of the audience, again, in that first year when the original cast was still there and like his death was very much a part of the experience for all of us in that room every night. And he was presence was so there and it was so like every night, the enormous presence of Jonathan Larson, you know, looming over all of us in the, in the most beautiful way, but again, the most bittersweet way was there. And it, you know, look, it wasn't always so much fun to do the show because of all of that heaviness and because of that weight. And so, you know, I, I get asked often, you know, like what's one of your favorite experiences. And my favorite experience was getting to come back and do the national tour with Anthony Rapp in 2009 and experience the joy of doing that show without this enormous weight. Yeah. Enough time had passed that it had been lifted. You know what I mean? And so, whereas we all felt that weight of Jonathan and that importance of telling the story, the other thing that I've come to, I've, part of my career in, in the years that have passed is that I do a lot of teaching and I do master classes mm-hmm. and I speak to a lot of casts, certainly a, a rent casts and things like that. And I, I always tell them, 
don't saddle yourself with the weight of anything. You, it's not your responsibility to carry the weight of telling yeah. an important story. The, the story is going to be important or it's not going to be important depending on who's watching and who's listening. And they're either going to absorb something or they're not. So and it's true. not your job to carry something heavy. You're actors. Just do your job, have fun, tell the story in the best way that you can, but don't saddle yourself with anything having to do with the importance of it. It's not. Ultimately, in the grand scheme yeah. of life, it's not. Like, yeah. And I think that that is a big relief a lot of times for young actors to hear because I think they go into it thinking like, oh, this is important and I have to bear the burden of that, that importance. And we don't as actors. That's not our job you know? Yeah. yeah, And it's so beautiful what you said. And also I've in my recent years found that people don't see, they see what they're willing to see. So anyone sitting in those seats, it's like whatever their capacity is to receive the importance, it's on them. Like there's a level at which you just, you can't help people perceive whatever they're not willing to perceive. And, and and taking that on is ridiculous, but I will say that you know, one day when, you know, if, and when you have this meeting with him in the next world, like all I can say is the level of pride and quelling that he must've been doing because there was such beauty, just absolute beauty. Each one of you. Thank you. I, I can certainly say that, you know, the experience that the audiences were having and everything that the show became was exactly what he wanted. It was yeah. his wildest dreams come true in every Beyond. way. You know what I mean? Like it was exactly what he wanted. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to stick around to experience it, but everything happened in exactly how his wildest dreams could have played out, except for that one unfortunate aspect. Yeah, except for that. But he's such a genius and had such a ability to choose geniuses because it was just magic. And just to see that many souls who are so present to be on stage together and that's why so many of you have had just giant careers since then because it was no accident so I said I mean you've done so many things and we're going to talk about what you've been doing recently but I also got to see you in Aida and I like I said I was like the expectation was so high coming off a rent that I was just no expectation I was like this totally different story whatever who's this girl Heather Headley I don't know and I'm (laughs) like how is this possible I was literally sobbing the entire time and I was like this is just ridiculous am I being set up like how can my soul be like wrung out to this degree and you guys were unbelievable my question is coming out of the former experience like what was your expectation and were you blown away that you could have that happen again at that level like well I'll sort of jump around on that question my experience with the audience experience was not to the level. I know people love the show and I think the show is incredibly underrated and it's an amazing show and I love it and deserving of, of the love that it gets from the audience. But I didn't feel at the time that people were having sort of like that same experience that they had with rent. That being said, I knew I was in this wonderful show, you know, but it was a very different experience. The whole experience was very different. And I'll start by just sort of pointing out sort of like this broad stroke idea, which is that, So Rent was this off-Broadway, no money. So we all wore our own clothes on stage. So many of the costumes were things that we owned, real sort of like down and dirty, off-Broadway, you know, Lower East Side style, you know what I mean? To then right after that, Disney, Elton John, Tim Rice, all the money, all the (laughs) attention, all of this. So like it was creating a musical from two opposite ends of a spectrum. But it was an incredible experience. And I got to work with, really amazing, incredibly talented people and create this incredible piece of theater. But I, as I said, the experience was very different. You know, Rent was adored, not just by the audience, but mostly by critics as well. And Aida was not. Aida suffered from very much of the, of the, the, the Broadway snobbery towards Disney that has tamed to a certain degree now, uh, well, I should say tamed very much, but back then was still very much in full force. So Disney doing this show already, the critics already had their claws out. And so it, critically, it didn't do well. Obviously, Heather, you know, you, you, you couldn't oh, not adore God. Heather. And you know what I mean? So like she came away unscathed and ultimately won a Tony, deservedly so. But like the show got it bashed and I got bashed like in the New York Times. So like my only experience in life in theater was was Rent. 
And I think, I, I guess it was Ben Brantley said something wonderful, like the golden throated Adam Pascal or something. He called me like, said, said something really <laughs> incredibly, you know, wonderful about me. And then in the review for Aida called me the hieroglyph stiff Adam Pascal. <laughs> and so like my experience was very different and it took a while for me to find my performance in that show. Unfortunately, it took after the New York Times review, <laughs> but like it took me a really long time and several things had to happen. You know, Bob Falls, who I love and who's an incredibly talented director, was our director. And, but Bob is and was, you know, like an old school director in that like he's incredibly good at working with seasoned actors and creating these incredible, you know, shows with these seasoned actors. I wasn't a seasoned actor at all. And I needed somebody to hold my hand in the way that Michael Greif, our director kind of held my hand through a lot of stuff, you know, because I just didn't have the experience. And I think I needed that. And Bob just wasn't that guy. And so I think my performance suffered. And it wasn't until, and this is kind of funny, it wasn't until Gladiator came out that year. It was the same year. <laughs> and it wasn't until I saw Gladiator and Russell Crowe's performance mm. in that movie, which was so incredible. And for whatever reason, it resonated with me with for what I was doing and who I was playing. I was playing Radames and the captain of the army yeah. and the Egyptian. Like there was a connection there that I felt and that resonated with me that helped me find my performance. Like it really, it totally transformed my performance. But the experience nonetheless was amazing. I, you know, I have a sour taste in my mouth about the fact that our show that year, which as you know, you saw it, it was amazing. Everybody loved it, was not nominated for best musical. And this goes back to what I was saying before about this, this yeah. snobbery towards Disney. Yeah. And so, but here's, here's the kicker. It was nominated for best music, best actress, best lighting, and like another techno best design, whatever it was. And it won all four of those. Wow. So it won all four of those Tonys, including best music, best original score, but yet somehow didn't merit yeah. a nomination for best musical. I mean, how can you really justify that? Like to this day, I want an apology from every yeah. Tony nominator who worked that year to ex yeah. or explain to me the logic of how you can say the show did not deserve a, oh a nomination for best musical. I'm so happy that you have the humility and the grace to share all of this because it is so ridiculous. And Nora Jones was here and she was talking about the year she won eight Grammys and how it was the worst year of her life, which she didn't realize at the time, but she realized that the next year, because right. the hype machine of who she was coming out of the gate, like making an indie record and it's kind of jazzy, but it winds up on like the billboard chart and then the pressure to do that again. And then all right. of a sudden it was like, see, she's nothing. See this. Right. She's like, why did I need this? Like, I think for what you're, you're, you're sharing, it's so important because so often we are so quick to judge ourselves the way the world is judging us. And it's not fair because rent was like a revolution. It was like a revolution culturally. It was a, like on so many levels. And Aida is a, just a piece of theater. Like it's a very different kind of creation, as you said. And right. the truth is, and I mean, I have sojourned the earth, you know, like I'm always looking for the masters and the teachers, the way you looked at each other. That song, every song, the way you held space for her, it's a mic drop and you know it. And the, the fact of the matter is they just put you on a different pedestal because they weren't judging Aida the way they judged Rent because Rent sure. is like the bad news bears like coming out from behind and it's like, oh, right. who are these people? <clears throat> and all of a sudden they're like, well, they've got all the money, all the lights, all this. He's the best. He's already come out of this. He should be this, this, this. And it's like, it's ridiculous because the amount of presence and depth in those songs and the way you both delivered them and just the way you looked at her, I'm telling you, like it was there and it was, it's amazing, right? Though, because you're just a person still, right? And the way that can take you down. It, I mean, it must've been between you and your, your personal friends and therapy or whatever. like that is a beast for you to yeah. have to weather. And I, it kills me that you had to go through that because it was so amazing. <laughs> and I, I thank you. And I appreciate that. And, and, you know, ultimately the show had its last laugh in the sense that, I mean, you know, it's a beloved show. And now all of these years later, people look back on it and go, Oh, you know what? That really was an amazing show. And it's going to come back. There's a version of it now that's, <gasps> that's being revived. That's been 
uh, reconceived by a woman named Shelley Williams, who was a director, but a very close friend of mine who was in Aida. She played Nehebka in the original cast. And she is now a director and she's reconceived this new version of Aida, which is eventually going to make its way, I'm sure, to Broadway. But yeah, so it was an incredible experience, but so different in so many ways. But yeah, but getting back to Heather, you know, like when you work with a, a Heather Headley, like if you're smart, you get out of her way. <laughs> you know what I mean? You just yeah. let her do her thing and everyone in her orbit is going to be raised up to that level. Like if you yeah. just allow yourself to, to be lifted up in her orbit yeah. by her, we're all going to come off well. I mean, that's sort of like the theory, you know? Well, that's what I'm saying. What she has is just moonlight. It's yeah. just like looking at the moon. So that's why it doesn't make any sense because you don't see moonlight like that. And that's what you have. And the whole cast of Rent and Rent itself was Moonlight. But she is that in potency, right. like in a person. Right. What was it like for you in all reality, coming off of all of that criticism and that just like scrutiny? Did that affect you in a way that was real? Like, or did you get right back up and say, I don't care what, what these people think of anything. I'm going to keep going. No. No, no, it, it definitely affected me. And it, and I certainly, when, when I first started, like, in Rent, because everyone loved me, I was like, I thought I was somebody who had a thick skin. And then once people started to not love me, I realized, oh, no, I don't. I don't have a thick skin. Stop, 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 stop. You know, and so it definitely affected me. And, and look, you know, in those years also, Rent was the springboard for all of us in our careers, most of whom were actors and wanted to continue to be actors. I still was in the rock band thing. And so I was looking at the Rent experience to be the springboard to my big record deal. And for various reasons, that never happened. And so then Aida came along, but I was still struggling after Aida to know where I fit, where I belonged. Those were very difficult years for me, very difficult years for me, because I was in ways the it boy. You know, I experienced what that feels like in show business to become oh, that. Yeah, you were. But, but the thing is, is that I, I wasn't prepared for the kind of it that I was being presented with, which was Hollywood. Had I been a, an actor, had acting been my pursuit I'd probably be a huge movie star right now because I was given every opportunity to do so. But that's not what I wanted and I wasn't prepared for. So I sort of reluctantly, begrudgingly went down that path because it was being presented and I couldn't say no. I couldn't say no to George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and this person who wanted me to come in and audition for them. I couldn't say no. I mean, how could you not? But in my head, I was like, why do I even have to audition? Why, you know, like I just didn't understand anything and I didn't know how to audition. And so those were really hard years for me because, again, I wasn't getting the attention and the interest from the music industry that, which is what I wanted, but I was getting all of this attention from Hollywood. And again, had I been prepared for it, my career could have gone in a different way. And I don't say that in in like, oh God, I wish way. I just think that they probably would have because I would have pursued that actively and had been prepared for it. So a lot of these amazing roles that I had auditioned for back in the day, I might've gotten, you know what I mean? Like anyway, but point being is, is that all of those auditions and that all of that experience of doing that and then not getting the parts and being told you know, that I was like green and I didn't like, I didn't know how to internalize that stuff. And I took it all very personally and I didn't, I couldn't look at it from a, you know, a wider perspective. And it just made me angrier and angrier. And I was just like, and I hated it and I hated it and I just didn't want to do it. And it was just, and all of this stuff was going on. And then along comes, not really along comes during all of this time, cabaret at studio 54 was running and it was the most incredible show I'd ever seen. You know what I mean? And Alan Cummings performance and what oh Sam God. Mendes did with that show and, and Rob Marshall and just the world they created. And I was like, oh my God, like that's the kind of thing I would, I want to do. I want to play that part. Like, oh my God, you know? And so, you know, they started getting into like the rotating MCs and I was like, okay, maybe I'll get a chance. And I kept going to the producers or casting, whatever. And like, it just, it never worked out and they never really showed any particular interest. And then they were announced that they were going to close. And then all of a sudden I get a call. They want to extend. And do I want to be the last MC yeah. and close the show? Awesome. And it was and, and sort of like what you were talking about before, like it had to happen at that time. Right. And, and I was in a place in my life where I was like, again, really struggling. Is this the business I even want to be in? And I don't want to be an actor and I don't know. And where's my record deal and all this, you know, like all this, but then that came along and the opportunity to do that came. And 
I was terrified, but I wanted to do it so badly because something in me told me that I could. And I did. <laughs> and and I did it really well. And it was an incredible experience. And it really, it changed my life in the sense that it solidified this path that I've been on, this path of, of being an actor and being a musical theater actor and all like it. It solidified me on that path in a way that I really needed because it exposed me to a respect for this art form that I didn't have up until that point. It's amazing. And I didn't see yeah. it, but I heard how amazing you were. And friends of mine recently saw you in Pretty Woman and were standing outside the door, literally bawling hysterically. Like you haven't stopped performing. And I think what's really so powerful about this story is that it can be a test sometimes when other people throw at you what they think is best for you. But right. ultimately, sometimes the dreams that we wind up chasing are the dreams that chase us back. And you're right. very, very good looking and you have this leading male it factor. So I can see where you can find, kind of find yourself in this washing machine of the world saying, do this, stand here. Right. Right? right. And you're like, well, okay, I probably should follow that. But then it's like, wait, that's really not me, even though that's confusing. And then you find yourself like being chased back by this other thing, which also wasn't the thing you thought it was going to be, which is like a record deal. But instead you're like, this is my lane, like theater, but musical theater. And it's like, it's just a well, powerful thing. Yes, absolutely. And, and thank you for saying those things about me. And I, and I sort of, you know, my feeling about my career, because certainly I do at times, you know, think like, oh, I, I should be on TV and making movies. I should do more of that. And I should, you know, like, and I do think that <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> I would love to do all that. You know, but my honest thinking about it is that, and what's held me back from pursuing that wholeheartedly a hundred percent is that I feel like I'm a good actor and I'm a competent actor and I could pull off most roles that sort of most leading men in Hollywood can pull off, but so can they. You know what I mean? And so, whereas I feel like I'm good, I'm not necessarily unique in that way. And I feel that in the world of musical theater and my singing and the, my style and the way that I sound and like, I feel like that's what makes me unique. That is the most unique thing about me. And I should not forsake that. And I should continue to pursue what it is that makes me so unique and where I've had the most success because of that. I think a classic mistake, I see a lot of actors do this, who have success in musical theater, maybe somewhat early on in their career. Um, and maybe they win a Tony or something like that. And they immediately leave and they go to Hollywood, thinking that that is somehow their golden ticket to making movies. And then a lot of times they get to Hollywood and they realize no one cares about your Tony. Go back to New York and keep doing theater. Those are the people that care about your Tony. Hollywood doesn't. Now you're just another guy, one of thousands of guys. You know what I mean? Like, and so I made that mistake after the Rent movie, thinking that the Rent movie was somehow going to be my golden ticket to movies and TV. And it wasn't because it didn't really take off in the way that the show did. But I made that mistake in thinking that it would. And then when it didn't, it was a, a huge letdown that yeah. took sort of years to get over, you yeah. know, because I had uprooted my family and moved to, to Los oh Angeles gosh. thinking like, oh, okay, I'll make movies now. But then ultimately kept going back to Broadway. So now I lived in California and then I kept going back to, you know, away from my family to do Broadway. Yeah, that's incredible. I, when I was, I came out to LA in 2003, had a record deal at Interscope, got dropped, had a record deal at Atlantic, got dropped, then started writing music for Grey's Anatomy and all, which was licensing songs for 10 years. And then at 37 with three kids, I started a podcast and overnight it was like this giant it was just easy. And I was like, yeah. oh, like if I would have kept banging down that other door, like I'm an okay songwriter. I'm okay enough that I can get in the room with Craig Kalman or Ron Fair. Sure. But I sat with Lady Gaga at Sunset Sounds and I was like, there's your zone of genius and there's your right. zone of like excellence. And like, yeah. you're better than one zillion percent of the people <laughs> who've ever tried to do any of those things. But when you're on stage doing theater, it's Michael Jordan. Like, that's the thing. It's like, and that still doesn't mean anything really, because I mean, Ben Platt was just talking about how like Dear Evan Hansen, the movie was like the worst failure of his life. Right. And the musical was out of this world. Right. But what does that mean? It's one moment and it's one piece and it's how one piece can't really go from the theater to a screen. And 
I don't know that that means anything forever and ever and always, but it says so much about you. And I think people who are listening need to hear this because we're so quick to be hard on ourselves when like there's just clues pointing you towards where you really are meant to be in this moment and the willingness to be led by that. It's huge humility. Well, yes. And I think that the thing about this business and my perspective on it that has evolved into the idea that this career as a job, you know, I'm in pretty woman now and I work really hard, but this isn't a job. This is the reward. The The job of being in show business is not quitting. The job of being in show business is to keep trying to get the gigs. That's the job. Because we do this because we love it. So we're pursuing something that we love that's really hard. So when you finally get it, you can't call that the job. That's not what this is. And I think it could help and be helpful if people looked at it that way, that like, okay, you know, the drudgery and the heartbreak and the pain and the anguish and the struggle and all of that stuff of not work, of not having those jobs, that's the job. And not quitting, that's the job. And so- I continue to sort of look at it that way. And I, you know, and and occasionally you come across people in this business who are so unhappy and they complain about everything. And they're just like, and I'm talking about people that you work with on a gig, you know what I mean? And it's like, (laughs) what do you, you got, you're finally here. here. You're finally here doing this. And all you do is complain. Do you want to go back to not having it? Isn't that worse? I mean, like, it's such an important giant point that you're making. And I love that you have moments in your life where you're in the teaching role, because this is a book. I mean, this is so profound. Like I say to people all the time is really what you're after a pile of stuff. Like, do you want the achievement or do you want well-being moment by moment? And that's what you're saying. Like, being willing and able to find a level of of peace within yourself on the journey, that's the mic drop. Because ultimately, if everything is about, oh, I have to find this ladder and my happiness is on the other side of getting this thing, right? then your happiness is always somewhere other than where you are. And And that sucks. And even when you get what you think you wanted, you still won't be happy. And I certainly have, have had moments of that too. But yes, you can't live a miserable broken hearted existence and only have that change when you get a gig. If you're in show business, you like, okay, now life is complete. And now my gig is over. And now I'm back to a complete shattered mess because my whole being yeah, is wrapped up in whether God, or not I have such a like roller coaster. You, and it's very easy to live like that in this business. Cause that's what it does to us. It's what it does to us emotionally. You know what I mean? Because it's constant rejection. It's constant, you know, striving and calling and calling and then rejection. And so, you know, and we're not built for that. Nobody's built for that. Yeah. Um, you know, and so the best way to combat it is to acknowledge that it exists acknowledge how hard this is and what a difficult, heartbreaking business this can be and do all the the work to make it not that. Yeah, no, this is like, this is the deepest of the deepest jewels because it's also, it's it's so impossible and it's so (laughs) surreal to be as famous as you are. Like in certain moments to have that level of fame, when you come down from that, that is not something most human beings have to deal with that delta. Ralph Macchio was here talking about his book because now he's in Cobra Kai. So it's like, you know, given new life to this. He goes, listen, he goes, it was the biggest blessing and the biggest curse to be in this Karate Kid thing because it then kept me from getting roles. Even though he was a brilliant actor, he had been on Broadway, he had done the outside. And he's like, and then the fame thing that's so high, then you walk into rooms and you're embarrassed. Like you're embarrassed that you haven't worked in nine years. It's like- Well, that's that's the thing. There's nothing worse than being- famous and out of work or famous and being broke. Those are the worst feelings. You know, I, I've got friends. I've, you know, I've, I've, I've one particular friend of mine who's a, a musician, a, a very popular metal band, you know, that's been around forever. And, and he's a very influential bass player. And he's, in, he's influenced all these guys who've come after him and gone on to massive success and made millions and millions of dollars. And they all look up to him and he's inspired them, but he's sort of like, it's, there's something bittersweet about that. Like, I'm glad that I've been so inspiring to you and that you've gone on to make tens of millions of dollars. And, you know, like I haven't, you know, and again, not that he hasn't done very well, but my point is like, yeah, having success and then having to 
form like he and I are very similar in that very early on in our career. I don't recall if, if Karate Kid was like his first thing, but I think it was. And like having this enormous success as your first thing and then having to build a career that can only come down from that. So like, you know, most, most, most people's careers that they're building kind of go in a trajectory like this, you know, Ralph Macchio and I had to go like this, (laughs) like we had to take a big step down and then figure out how to exist here in sort of in a middle place that has longevity. The truth is, and I mean, so much of what you do when you're singing and when you're on stage is you're bringing us back to our truth, right? Our soul. And the truth is that part of us, that bigger conscious part of us, it doesn't need any of that stuff, right? Right. It's just the ego and the world we live in that puts all of our worth on those things. That's really damaging. But the truth is you signed up, you came into this experience your soul's having this like amazing journey. You're impacting more people than most people ever have impacted. And it's with your gift, which comes from the biggest truth of who you are, not your ego, right? Like that's why you're moving people because you have this sweet kid inside of you who has vulnerability and pathos and sweetness. That's all in your soul that none of that is about what you have to prove. And then of course, because everyone goes, look, 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 here comes all the ego stuff because people put that on you. Of course. And it's, look, we're in show business and it's impossible to not have your ego impossible. play a role. And I've made terrible decisions in my career because of my ego that I, I, I regret to this day. And, and one of the things I tell students all the time is do everything in your power to not let your ego make career decisions and business decisions. <laughs> Just don't, it's your worst enemy. You have to figure out a way to separate yourself from that. Yeah. And look, I have, my rabbi said this recently and I thought it was so brilliant that like, as long as the Batman lives, Joker lives too, because without the Joker, he's not Batman. And so he was right. like, we, we all have an ego and that's your anti-self, but it's what actually helps you see where you're kind of needing to rise above. It's sort of like, you're sparring with it all the time. And that's kind of what makes it all so satisfying when you choose the right path. And sometimes the best thing for somebody, as a matter of fact, I would say all the time is to get knocked down a little bit. Like you have to know what that feels like to be able to start to begin to have a a healthy relationship with your ego. You know, it's important to maintain humbleness and humility and understand reality. And I think when you have your ego taken down a peg. It helps you, hopefully, if you're able to internalize it in a healthy way, understand reality in a way that um, when people are just kissing your ass and telling you how wonderful you are, you you can't understand, you know, and that was my experience with rent. You know, I, I went from nothing, for lack of a better term, to this rock star and not just a rock star that like, oh my God, I love your music. But like you're changing lives, you're 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 opening souls, (laughs) you're moving people to tears, you're all of like really heavy stuff that like really I am? Wow. (laughs) I must be I must be super special then. You are, you you are. (laughs) No, but but you know what I'm saying? Like you have to and so like it's hard. And again, one of those things only in hindsight, you can look back and go, Oh wow, what a a heady experience. And I'm glad I'm glad I didn't turn out worse. (laughs) You're like you're literally the sweetest and I love that you're still doing all of these pieces of theater because I can go see you again and again. And you know what? It would be such a boring video game. Life would be so boring if there was no ego. Like if it was all just like, yeah, you got to the top of the mountain and now you just sit there. You right, of like course. That. You wouldn't like that either. You'd be no. like, where's the contrast, you know? And so of course. it makes exactly. all those wins so sweet. But yeah, it's totally surreal. And the truth is that every time I've seen you, it is magic and everybody means it. And it's awesome. And it is Thank hard you. to be that. It's hard to be a person that walks around with magic and then also go to the grocery store. And also, again, getting back to career and also to struggle, to struggle in this career and go, everything you're saying to me, really, like I take it to heart and it means so much to me and, I, and I'm so grateful for it and it humbles me and all of those things are true. And yet at the same time, I don't know what my next job is. No, I understand. You know, and as much as this job was great, 
Like uh, I live a real life like everybody else. I'm getting right. divorced. I'm about to get divorced. And she and I are great. Everybody's great. I'll just get that off the plate. Like and the kids are great. Everybody's great. But, you know, I'm about to have no money, <laughs> you know, as happens when people get divorced. And so like all of the things you're saying about me are so wonderful. And yet at the same time, there's an element of frustration that I feel that like, then why can't I have my next job now? So that I don't, that I don't have to freak out that like, I'm going to have to go live in my sister's extra bedroom, oh Be- you know? And, and so that's also the reality of life and of show business. I you know what I mean? Like, like speaking of reality, I feel like someone needs to create the reality show where the thousand women who just heard you say that, who now want to be online to be that girl. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's that in of itself casting who that next person is because the line is out the door. Okay, um, I need a I need a rich woman. I'm just saying. No, I'm kidding. I have a girlfriend. No, and I have a girlfriend who I'm very much in love with, and like those things are great. But no, but, but again, I totally hear just- what you're saying. But you know, I just saw the Fablemans, which was incredible, and I go to see this movie, and I'm reading the reviews, and everybody like loves it, and I'm thinking, even Steven Spielberg, for God's sakes, people were like, well, I mean, he hasn't made a good movie since blah blah blah, blah. and I'm like, this is literally like art. It's just you could be anyone at that level and people are like well sure. what, what have you done for me lately and it's like steven spielberg what has he done well that's for the you? thing like, it's show business yeah. and it's more so business it's than show it's ridiculous it really but is in sort of closing this interview i just want to ask you in your humble beautiful expert opinion what do you think is is what it takes to tell a great story on stage what do you think it takes for actors to be great actors in the moment like What's one thing that comes to mind in telling those stories? Well, it's a conceptually, but I think it's the ability to be natural. It's the ability to understand that in essence, acting is not acting. It's just being natural. And so it's in ways you're not performing. I have an issue with the word performance sometimes with regards to acting, because like, you know, when I get up with an instrument, and I play a song, I feel that the word performance is, is a little bit more apt in that regard because I'm doing something that I practiced doing and I acquired this skill and I'm getting up in front of people and I'm doing that thing that I learned how to do for these people. To me, there's an element of acting, even though, of course, you, people study and do this and that, but ultimately, and this, is, this was why I was successful in Rent, because I just have this ability to just be natural and be real and be able to convey ideas and emotion in the way that just people do in real life. And that ultimately is what makes a good actor. And that's, in a way, not performing. It's just being natural. And so I think that ultimately that's what makes somebody a good actor and is the ability to be natural. I love that. And I feel like I said this to you before, but I feel you're so present. And I feel that comes from just, I mean, it's being willing to be there with somebody and be a witness. And that's what I felt from you every time I saw you in Rent, when I saw you in Aida, just like, he's there in this moment, which is what then gets the best out of the next person. Like those scenes with Mimi, like those scenes, like where you're just there and she can feel it, we can feel it. And really that's what makes the best boyfriend. That's what makes the best no. guy. It's mindfulness. And in what we practice in meditation of mindfulness meditation, you know, it's, it's trying to be in the moment, live where you are, you know, which is really hard to do as, as human beings. Yeah. And it's so good. And it's so fun to be around. And uh, it was such a delight to just get to talk to you. And are you still really close with all of the cast from Rent? Are you guys still really good friends? I'm certainly closer to some than others, but we do have a group chat. Oh, that's so cute. That makes me so happy to know. Yeah, we we have a group chat that we're all pretty active in, you know, and and so I would say certainly at least once or twice a week, somebody's posting something in the in the group chat, whether it's birthday or this or that, you know what I mean? And so I'm I'm certainly in contact with everybody in that regard. I'm still very close with Jesse Martin and Anthony Rapp and Daphne and Wilson. Like some of us I've some some people I've stayed much closer with, you know. For those of us who literally like grew up with rent, like that just makes us so happy. So tell us where we can follow you and tell us what's next. Where, where can we see you in Pretty Woman? What's next? Like tell everybody where they can go to follow and support. Uh, certainly Adam Pascal on Instagram and on, on Facebook. And uh, I'm on tour right now with the musical Pretty Woman. And uh, we're just wrapping up the tour. We've got a few months left. We finish May 7th in Sacramento, California. Right now I'm in Fort Worth, Texas. Next week we go to Florida and I'll spend the next month or so in Florida, different cities in Florida. We go to Canada for a little while. 
And so, yeah, we've been out. It's been about a year and a half now that we've been out. The tour has been incredible. Audiences have been loving the show. It's been so much fun. And uh, I don't know what's next. As I said before, it's, and it's scary. I'm hustling to try and figure out what's next, but I don't know. I've never had my next job lined up while I was still in the job that I was in. I've never experienced that. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know. Um, what's amazing is I remind myself of the fact that like, we have these like brains with these like amygdalas, right? And I studied meditation for three years at UCLA because God, I need it. But I learned how, you know, the brain wants certainty so bad because it's so scared. And then who you really are, all you really want is the surprise. It's like, right. It's like this push-pull because your soul is like, give me an adventure, make it unpredictable. And your brain is like, no, I must seize the moment and know what's happening four steps ahead. But you would never want it to be that way. And if the past is any evidence that the world just keeps scooping you up, you know, what does Ram Dass say? We don't get what we want. We get what we are. You are so lovable and adorable. And you're so sweet. Thank you. It's just like never going to miss you because you. it's who you are. And I can't believe how likable I mean, like, when, for you to be this cool. You most likely would have a giant ego and be a douchebag, but you're not. So <laughs> this is why you keep getting work. <laughs> so just allow it. It's just going to keep being awesome. And I'm so happy that I got to meet you. I'm 43. I was sitting in that seat. How many years ago? Just being that like, I've never seen I'm like, oh, I've never seen this before. This exists? Wow. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Kathy, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Oh, my gosh. Truly, like, my 16-year-old self is freaking out that that just happened. What is my life, really? Okay, so here are the takeaways. Number one, it's not your responsibility to carry the weight of telling an important story. The audience will absorb it or not. Just do your job. Have fun and tell the story in the best way that you can, but don't saddle yourself with the importance of it. Number two, when something in you tells you that you can do it, take the opportunity, even if you're terrified. Number three, it can be a test when other people give you what they think is best for you, but ultimately, sometimes the dreams that we wind up chasing are the dreams that chase us back. Number four, there are clues pointing you towards where you were really meant to be in this moment. Have the humility and willingness to be led by it. Number five, the job is not quitting. The job is going after the gigs and dealing with the drudgery and heartbreak, the pain and the anguish and the struggle. That is the job and you do it because you love it. Number six, be willing to find a level of peace within yourself on the journey. And number seven, sometimes the best thing is to get knocked down because you have to know what that feels like to build a healthy relationship with your ego. It's important to maintain humbleness and humility and understand reality. And number eight, be in the moment, live where you are. Thank you guys so much for listening, especially today. It just feels like just something so special to share with all of you. It's never lost on me that you spend your time here. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We have so many good episodes coming up. So please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. And if you love the show, please leave us a review. We would love to hear from you. So remember, we're doing a giveaway. Two of you will win a $500 shopping spree to Nordstrom. All we want you to do is go to kathyheller.com slash share and tell us about yourself. Tell us what you're dreaming about. Tell us what the obstacles are. This is a chance for you to vent, for you to tell us all the things and we're going to listen and we're going to start to make things for you. In fact, we might even reach out and see if we can answer any of your questions or help you in some way. So go to kathyheller.com slash share. That would be amazing to hear from you and two of you will win a $500 Nordstrom gift card. But the truth is we have an incredible team and most likely they will reach out to you and see how they can help or if they can answer any questions or send you any resources to get you to your goals this year. If you want to text anyone or tell them about this podcast or post about it, you could tag me on Instagram. You could tag Adam. He's at Adam Pascal. I'm sure he'd love to see that you tagged him and post about it. I love you so much. I'll leave you with a song of mine. Have an amazing weekend. Today